Welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. This is John Murphy. Our special guest for this podcast is Dr. Kyria Kiedis, who is an associate professor at Yale University, Department of Pathology and Biomedical Engineering. Dr. Kyria Kiedis, welcome to Regenerative Medicine Today. Hello. It's my pleasure to be with you. So this podcast is a joint venture with the Journal of Immunology and Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Kyria Kiedis is an advisory board member. So before we talk about your work, Let's talk a little bit about the journal. What excited you about the formation of this new journal? I think there is an increased interest and importance in understanding the interaction of synthetic materials or native materials with cells and tissues and how they influence the immune system and then how that interaction then leads to positive or negative outcomes in terms of regeneration. So I think it's a very timely topic because a lot of these things that we're trying to develop I think the success hinges on how immunologically these things interact. So it's a great interest for many different applications. So I think we're excited to have at least a focused publication or a a journal on this particular topic. So that, of course, blends very well with your interest and your research. I was looking at uh, your website. I noticed that you have a series of issues that you're addressing relating to biocompatibility. So perhaps for those that aren't familiar, what's the general type of issues one encounters when trying to plant biomaterials in the body? There is the term biocompatibility implies that a biomaterial can perform well within a host without causing any harm. And that definition depends obviously on the type of implant. And the issues are, in general, the ensuing response after we put something in the body is dictated by somewhat well-defined molecular and cellular events, meaning that different molecules and different cells interact with the biomaterial surface. And that triggers a series of reactions that will eventually determine whether whatever we implanted, whether it's a device or a a biomaterial, will function well as intended, or whether it's going to not function very well or sometimes cause harm. So I think it's critical to understand these events and characterize them well so then we can design strategies to make things work better. So, in terms of immune response, is a positive immune response desirable or undesirable in terms of implantation? I need to get a little technical. We have broadly two types of immune responses. We have what we call an innate immune response, and this is how we usually respond to all sorts of things that are getting to our bodies, sometimes by accident, like a splinter. And then we have a much more complicated and advanced version of the immune response, which is the adaptive immune response. And that's how we develop immunity to bacteria and other viruses, etc. And that involves the formation of antibodies and specialized immune cells. In general, with the biomaterials, we would probably want to avoid, and it's not common to see the most complicated type of response, which is the adaptive one. We usually see predominantly the innate immune response. So controlling that and having enough of it so that we can avoid major problems like contamination of bacteria, etc., but resolving it and moving on to regeneration would be the best outcome. Unfortunately, a lot of times the innate immune response doesn't resolve. It becomes persistent and chronic, and in those cases we have problems. So how does one go about trying to moderate 
and control this phenomenon? There's different approaches. Some people take a bimaterial-centric approach, so they try to modify it by material surfaces or by material properties, and that way they're trying to, I want to use the word trick, but somehow evade the innate immune response or steer it, guide it towards a more regenerative type of response. And other people are targeting directly the molecular and cellular processes by delivering, let's say, drugs or molecules that can modify those types of responses. And obviously you can combine these two things. You can do both. You can modify surfaces, modify biomaterials, and at the same time deliver things that are immunomodulatory so you can dampen the inflammatory response and steer it again, trigger it to be more what we see, for example, in the healing of wounds. So what's your preferred approach? I'm a trained biologist, so I personally prefer modifying the molecular and cellular environment. So I think those are a little bit more universal. So if you develop delivery techniques that modify the inflammatory response, you can, in theory, apply them to just all biomaterials, whereas a surface modification has to be tailor-made for every different biomaterial, so it's cumbersome. But it's just my bias. So one of the things I noticed that you've been involved in is using nanoparticles to actually treat surfaces of biomaterials. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, nanoparticles are a efficient way to capture different types of reagents, whether it's drug or small DNA molecules, and they have a increased efficiency in delivering these things into cells just because of their nano size. And I think a lot of people are finding quite a bit of success at the experimental level in delivering these payloads uh, efficiently into cells. There's other techniques that are around, like uh, trying to use current or using lipids, and those are not as efficient. So nanoparticles have gained a lot of popularity in terms of achieving this type of deliveries, and they're also biodegradable, so we don't have to worry about them in the long run, that they're going to persist and maybe create problems. It's a lot of excitement, and people have been using them for some time for all sorts of different applications. So one of your particular studies I see, if you bulk metallic glass, give us a little bit of insight into that. Absolutely. This is a novel material. They've been around for maybe a couple of decades, but they haven't been used in biomedical applications yet. They're just starting to uh, slowly emerge. They're unique in the sense that there's very specific alloy compositions that can be what we call black metallic glasses, and they have this property, if they're formulated the right way and fabricated the right way, that they become amorphous or glass-like, and that allows us to have this bulk material and process it almost like plastic, meaning that at very low temperatures, we can change these materials, pattern them. My collaborators turn them into foams. They can blow mold them. So there's a number of things you can do with them but they still have the advantage of being metal and very strong and also very corrosion resistant. So they have a number of really nice properties that we think are ideal for making such types of biomaterial or devices. And we've started, at least in our work, looking at uh, glucose sensors, stents for blood vessels, orthopedic applications to see if they can be made into um, plates or screws for stabilizing bones. And we think they'll be superior to existing materials. So that's the promise anyway. So we're excited about the new class of materials. 
So is the stent, for example, made from bulk metallic glass, or is coating put on a stent made from other material? We're looking at both types. Right now, our first pass at this is creating a stent that it is basically entirely made of a bulk metallic glass because we want to have, there's intrinsic desirable mechanical properties based on this amorphous nature. There's no crystals inside this, uh, this metal, so it can move a lot easier and it has, uh, we believe, much better compliance in terms of sitting in a vessel and responding to pulse and pressures. But there is also surface properties that are very desirable, like the corrosion resistance that I mentioned. So in some cases, we could, for example, in the orthopedic space, we could use it as a coating, and we're trying to develop these techniques now for existing implants, so we can just make them more corrosion resistant and more biocompatible. There's been a lot of interest, a lot of activity in 3D printing. Can you 3D print these materials? We cannot yet. There is a couple of industrial applications or places where they're using these materials for in industry and they're working on this. I think because they can be processed at very low temperatures, it, it might be feasible. The problem is creating the liquid alloy in the right composition. So that's the technical limitation right now. Usually it's a combination of three or four elements and it has to be exact so that you can maintain that amorphous nature and it also has to cool very fast otherwise the crystals form so it has there's some technical problems that need to be overcome before they can be 3d printed but i know this industry is very interested in this so how do you build a stent now you cast it yeah the challenge has been and we've finally are getting there we can do two different things one is to cast the cylinder and then use laser cutting to cut the stent pattern and the other one is to actually cast into an existing stem pattern. So we're trying both. It sounds very promising. And of course, one of the questions some of our listeners always have is what's the likely availability of these new technologies? I gather this is still a pretty fundamental project. Is that correct? Yeah, for biomedical applications, absolutely. They're already used in other areas. I know that the aerospace industry is very interested in them and using them already. I know NASA is using them already. They're all already in the sporting world. They're included again in golf clubs and tennis rackets. So they're slowly, slowly emerging. I know Apple Computers, they license the entire patent portfolio from a company that makes these black metallic glasses. So they're definitely going to be around. I mean, the biomedical space, because of regulations and because of the early phase we're in now, it's probably going to take a while before we can move this into the commercial space, but I would say we have one publication on developing uh, a glucose sensor that can be used outside the body just to test glucose that seems to outperform the traditional sort of test strips, and I think that would be a place where we can see uh, early commercialization. Very interesting. I know that there's several strategies in terms of tissue engineering, in terms of native materials as opposed to synthetically produced materials. Can you tell us a little bit about your preference in this regard and some of the work you might be doing? In Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, the original paradigm for uh, sort of this tissue engineering was to have a synthetic scaffold, a appropriate stem cell, and then growth conditions. And when all those things were combined in the right order, in, under the right conditions, you could engineer a desirable tissue. There's a shift in the field now to start with the cellarized material instead of a polymeric synthetic scaffold. And that has a lot of advantages, is that it, it retains the architecture of the tissue you're trying to create. And it has the mechanical strength because, again, all these things are prepared by taking the tissue from a donor, removing all the cells, 
very carefully, and the process is called decelerization. And what you end up with is a scaffold, a template that then becomes a starting material for whatever you want to engineer again. So I think it's a very exciting process. It's been, again, slowly, slowly being developed, and some of these things are finding their way in the clinic already. So we are very much interested in this, and what we're trying to do in somewhat uh, translational type effort is that based on observations we've made in mice that we made ourselves that are genetically modified, we know that we have these types of scaffolds that have very desirable properties. So they're much better than what you can get from a regular, for example, mouse. So these genetic modifications impart a lot of beneficial advantages, and we're hoping that we can take this to larger animals so that we can then have scaffolds and hydrogels and whatever else we can make to great advantage. They can actually be remodeled and be friendlier to cells and do better when we put them in the, eventually in the host. So I think it's, it's an exciting time for sure. Certainly, I agree. There's been lots of publicity, lots of interest, and I guess lots of progress as well. So let me also go back to the subject of the immune response. How do you decide what is the right level of immune response when you fabricate some type of scaffold? There is really no actual specific metrics. I think that the field now we understand that the way to monitor the inflammatory response is to look at the specific cell type called the macrophage. And these particular cells assume sort of different levels of activation depending on what they encounter. And based on work by many, many different labs, including ours, we now kind of understand what the cells need to be like to drive proper repair and regeneration instead of staying chronically inflamed. So understanding that allows us to then run tests and figure out what are the best properties for a scaffold and whatever is going to be on it to trigger the cells into this sort of phenotype, this state that will allow them to be less active and then guide other cells to come in and drive repair. So I think now that we have a better handle on the inflammatory cells and what they need to be like, we can then run our experiments to figure out the best combinations of biomechanics, surface properties, and then composition of the scaffolds to achieve the results that we want. So I think this development in the last five years or so, it's been great. And I think it's helped the field move forward quite a bit. Before that, we didn't know just by going by the number of inflammatory cells was not informative because we didn't know what the cells were doing. But now that we have a better understanding, it's helped us a lot. You mentioned before your involvement with the journal. Uh, it's certainly a good forum for dissemination of knowledge and networking. Can you say a few words about the process for submitting papers for consideration by the editorial board? We would love to see papers in this space, whether synthetic materials or native materials, but I personally would like to see papers submitted in the area of inflammation and relating to biomaterials, and detailed studies are fine, application translational studies are fine, anything that will help us understand and, and make advances in this space will be great. It doesn't have to be a specific tissue. It could be anything from skin to heart to lung to liver. It doesn't, it doesn't really matter. Even fundamental studies, if they help us understand better how cells and biomaterials interact and how can this be modulated to improve outcomes, will be great. We're very excited to get papers like this. I echo that sentiment. So, Dr. Kudakides, uh, I'd like to thank you for joining us today for sharing your pioneering research. I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Genetic Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. 
Until we meet again, thank you for listening.